Well, good morning, and if you'll turn to page 6 in your bulletin, we're going to finish the book of Esther this morning, and as we've done the past couple of weeks, we're, we're covering kind of a large bit of text, and uh, not all of it is printed in your bulletin there. There's kind of a gap between the chapter 9 section that you have and the beginning of chapter 10, but we'll cover most of what's there. And these are, are the, the writer's concluding words to this Old Testament narrative story, and these concluding words for us sort of establish a liturgical role for the story of Esther, not just for the Jews for generations that followed her and Mordecai, but also for all Christians of all ages. It establishes a liturgical role for the story. The Jews at this point, you'll remember, have just in the story successfully defended their own lives against their attackers, against those who hated them, we're told. And the days that follow after that event are a celebration of sorts. So Esther 9 and 10, beginning in chapter 9, verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the fifteenth day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started out to do, and what Mordecai had written to them, For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, lots, had cast lots to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. King Xerxes imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would grant to us, as you are so faithful to do, understanding by your Spirit. Would you allow for your Spirit to teach us this morning by your word, so that we might grow deeper in faith, even as we come to the communion table together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray, Father, that you would meet us there, meet us in your word and give to us your word because your word is life. We pray that you would do these things for your own glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as John alluded to already this morning, Thanksgiving is coming up this week here in just a few days. And Thanksgiving, as I am sure that you well know, is a day to remember. Not necessarily to remember the particular Thanksgiving or any particular year's Thanksgiving Day, although 
there's much that you remember about particular ones. Some years, the food is better than other years. And some years, the conversation is more intriguing, and sometimes the company is more awkward, perhaps, than other years. And every family has some year in which Aunt Martha leaves the door open, and the German shepherd comes in and takes the turkey out to the backyard. Every family has that, and and you remember those particular things. But that's not the point of the remembrance that Thanksgiving is about. Rather, it's a day that's intended to help you to remember something bigger. It was, after all, nearly 400 years ago now when the pilgrims at Plymouth, Massachusetts celebrated, gathered to celebrate the the bounty of their first harvest because God had provided for them. And so they gathered to acknowledge that with thanksgiving. Much like the American history and the holiday that's in it, biblical history also gives us similar sorts of days. And Purim is one of those. Mordecai recorded these things we read here. What things did he record? Well, you'll recall the story. The prideful Haman, who was second in command in the entire Persian Empire, was seeking vengeance for Mordecai's disrespect to him. And Haman had literally rolled the dice to determine the day on which his murderous plot would be carried out, his plot to destroy all of the Jews. And Esther had risked her life to intervene with the king, and Haman's evil plan, we read, was returned on his own head. And for two days after that event, the Jews rested, and they celebrated with gladness and feasting and gifts And so Mordecai wrote his letter. Because of all that was written in the letter and what they had faced in this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves, that is, they took it upon themselves and their descendants and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews and their descendants. God had provided for them not a harvest of food, but rather the preservation of his people. Now, I realize that as we study an Old Testament story, an Old Testament narrative history like Esther, it can feel to you a little bit like you're sitting in history class. And maybe especially for you younger students, you middle schoolers and high schoolers, as you sit patiently and listen to sermons on Esther in the Old Testament, maybe you feel a little bit like you're sitting in history class and you're now on Thanksgiving break, perhaps some of you are, and you've got a break from school and here you are again sitting in history class. And I understand and I realize probably Some mornings you are thinking, what does ancient Persian history have to do with me? And i got to be honest, that's a fair question. And the answer I am going to honestly give you is probably not much. But the God who orchestrated all of it has everything to do with you 
and it should be him that you see when you look here. The days of Purim were established to help the Jews to remember what God had done for them. And even if those days don't make the cut on our calendar, there's something bigger to which those days point should make the cut in your soul. God is faithful to his people. These are days to remember a gospel reversal. This is remarkable, really, if you, if you think about it, because these events, as we've already seen in weeks past, took place hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, almost 500 years before Jesus was born. These events took place, and many people, many Christians in our day think that the gospel of grace is a New Testament thing. They think that there's some divide between the Old Testament God of anger and the New Testament God of grace. Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and we assume that that means that the Old Testament was this thing and the New Testament is that thing, but that's simply not the case. No, Esther actually allowed for generations of Jews to look back in order to see what was yet to come. We've seen the writer's theme throughout this story, the writer's theme of reversals, right? So Esther was an orphan Jewish girl who became the queen of the most powerful empire in the world. And Mordecai was an enemy of the state who became the head of the state. And Haman was a master manipulator who eventually became just a groveling criminal. All kinds of reversals that happen throughout the book. As you read, you see the theme. But it's a theme that's pointing to a much bigger reversal. Verse 22 tells you what it is. These days will be remembered as the days when the Jews got relief from their enemies and the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. Their destiny as a people had been reversed. It's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? As we look back into the Old Testament history, we see in that reversal a picture of the gospel. Because for nearly a thousand years, the Jews had constantly sought to find relief from their enemies. If you think about it, when they spent... Hundreds of years in Egypt as slaves there. For generations there in Egypt, they sought relief from the bondage of their slavery. And finally, God sent Moses and delivered them out of that bondage. They got relief temporarily, only to then travel into the wilderness and find that the Amalekites were waiting there to crush them. And the Edomites were waiting there to block their path. And the Amorites were waiting there to obstruct their progress. All of these enemies who put themselves in their way, and Joshua, their military leader, again and again gave them relief from their enemies temporarily. And then, generations later, there they are in the Promised Land, and the Philistines continually a headache to the Israelites, coming after them and conquering them, and a judge like Samson would be raised up to give them relief from their enemies, at least temporarily. It never lasted. And now through Esther, they have, again, relief from their enemies. But the looking back to remember is only a help to see more clearly going forward. 
Because even Esther didn't give them real relief. She only foreshadowed it, what she accomplished for them. Because throughout redemptive history, there is, you know, a much greater enemy than Egyptians or than Amalekites or than Persians or any people, group, or individual that you might imagine to be your enemy. There is a far greater enemy behind the scenes. And you might say, well, I know who that is. I know it's, it's Satan, the enemy of all enemies, the evil behind all evils. And he's, he's the greater enemy that's there. And in a sense, that's, of course, true. But there's something else. In Genesis 3, verse 15, God is addressing the serpent, Satan himself, in the garden when the man and the woman have just rebelled against God and God's words to the serpent are, I will put enmity between your offspring and the offspring of this woman. Now, who are those offspring? We know through redemptive history that the offspring of that woman would be Jesus himself. That's part of the reason for Esther. It shows God's preserving of his people for that purpose. But the offspring of the serpent, well, the serpent had no offspring. Oh, but he did. All the descendants of the man and the woman whose hearts were turned against God's redemptive plan. Those are the serpent's offspring. You and me. And God will put enmity between the two sides, hostility between them. So who's the real enemy of mankind in his fallen condition? It's God. God is the enemy of of that one. In fact, Jesus makes it clear. He says, don't fear those who can kill your body. But I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who can throw your soul into hell. And only God can do that. The problem that all people face is what to do with God. That's ultimately our problem. That's ultimately the problem that needs to be resolved. And the gospel reversal is what God has done for us. And it's just the opposite of what our hearts want to do with our enemies. You know, Jesus' disciples on the night of his betrayal, you'll remember that moment when the Roman guards approached them in the garden and his disciples said, Lord, shall we draw our swords and fight? And Jesus said, no. Even though one of them already had and had struck one of these enemies, Jesus said, no, put away your swords. Put away your swords. There's a reversal happening here. And we're just like the disciples where we want to respond to enmity, to hostility against us with enmity and hostility against that one who's attacked us, don't we? That's just the way that our hearts are. I remember when I was in elementary school, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, my brother and I shared a bedroom, and our two older sisters shared a bedroom, and the four of us shared a bathroom in between. And that bathroom was, you know, the battlefront between brothers on one hand and sisters on the other. That's where all the action took place, and it was never good. On one occasion, late at night, our sisters entered into our bedroom because of some offense that we had caused on the battlefront, and they walked into our bedroom when we were sound asleep with our mouths gaping open in sleep with tubes of toothpaste, 
and filled our mouths with toothpaste. We didn't realize it, of course, until our mouths began to burn and we had toothpaste all over our pillow and making a disaster of our bed. And you know, the next night, we went into their room with bottles, tubes of toothpaste to get revenge and spread them down their legs and on their arms and on their forehead. And it made a disaster. I don't know what the next step in the battle was, but it only got worse. You know that's how it happens. It just gets worse. If, if you've ever been hurt by someone, even with a tube of toothpaste, you want to hurt them back. But when you do, it only makes matters worse, doesn't it? You want relief, but instead you try to destroy Tim Keller is a pastor in New York who speaks often of of reconciliation and all that it brings out of the gospel, and he makes a great point. He, He says that there's only one way to destroy an enemy, only one way to eliminate an enemy, and that is to extend grace. That is a total reversal to what we want to do in the depth of our hearts, but to extend grace, and in that way, give that person, that enemy, actually a chance to become a friend, because it's not so much any particular enemy that's the problem, it's the enmity that must be destroyed. And Jesus Christ on the cross took the first step of extending grace and so destroyed the enmity between God and us and overcame the enemy. And so he gave you relief from the only enemy you should ever fear, which is God himself. And so he turned sorrow into gladness. He turned mourning into a holiday. So on that day, you remember the gospel reversal, but still you have real-life problems, don't you? Real-life issues that, that face you in your days. And so these days were also to help the Jews to remember a providential contentment. If you don't recognize God's providence in and around your life, then you will never actually be content. You never will. There's no way that you ever can possibly be content if you don't recognize the sovereign providence of God in and around your own life. The Jews were to make Purim, we read here, to be days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Now, Karen Jobes, that expert on Esther that I've mentioned before, explains that there are really two double-meaning words here that help us to understand the nature of this providential contentment. One of those words is the word parim itself. It's the, the name of the holiday. The writer, you'll notice in verse 24, I think, had to actually translate the word when he was writing to his Hebrew readers. He wrote to them that Haman had cast poor, and in parentheses, that is, he'd cast lots. He gives a Hebrew word to translate the Persian word poor. He has to translate it for his readers to explain that Haman actually had rolled the dice, literally. The Hebrew word is somewhat common in the Old Testament. It shows up a few times. In the Proverbs, we read that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And that helps us a bit to understand some things. And even when Joshua, in dividing up the promised land among the Jews, when he was determining which tribe would go to which part of the land, Joshua cast 
lots, we're told. He rolled the dice to help the people know which direction they were to go in the promised land. But there's a second and related meaning to the word. It is not just the dice, but the result that comes from the dice roll. Ecclesiastes, there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. In other words, that's his place in life. That's the the place to which the roll of the dice has led him. Now, the other double meaning is in what the Jews did on those days. They would send gifts of food. The Hebrew word is portions. They would send portions to one another. And the second meaning there is not just food, but again, the result of the roll of the dice. David helps us in Psalm 16. He says, both of them, Lord, you have assigned me my portion. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So Purim is is actually an ironic holiday with an ironic element in it. Its name and its gifts refute the roll of the dice. Because God rules your lot. He rules your portion by his sovereign providence. Now, you know, even Las Vegas doesn't believe in luck. Do you know that? Even the whole gambling industry, billions of dollars gambled every year. They do not depend on luck because they don't even believe in it. Do you know that? Luck is a marketing scheme. Luck is an empty comment that we make to our friends when they say to us something like, you know, I'm going to go in January to Colorado and go ice climbing. Most of you probably would not say, oh, that sounds great. I'd like to go with you. Rather, you would say to them, good luck with that. Right? It's something we say that doesn't really mean much because we don't know what else to say about it. It doesn't really mean anything because the roll of the dice or the flip of the card, is actually a very mathematical and statistical science. When you gamble, in whatever way you do, you're not playing luck. You're playing the odds. And even then, it's still determined from above, because what did the Proverbs say? The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so is your circumstance and your lot from the Lord. It did not just so happen by luck that Esther was beautiful, right? It did not just so happen that Mordecai was in the right place to overhear a scheme of assassination against the king. It did not just so happen that Mordecai's deed of saving the king's life was recorded in the Chronicles on a certain page. It did not just so happen that Haman's casting of lots fell to 11 months into the future to allow for almost a year of planning for the Jews' redemption. And it did not just so happen that the king was unable to sleep that night. It didn't just happen. It didn't just happen. Haman would not determine the Jews' destiny, we're told 
not by rolling dice and not by any executive order or any other worldly way that he might imagine. Only God and his providence could do that. And just the same, the world does not determine your place, your lot, either. Only God and his providence can ever do that. And in that, there is contentment. So, when the word of the counter-decree reached them, the Jews, were told, had light and gladness and joy and honor among them. And generation after generation, the Jews would look back to remember that because of God's providence, they could be content. Even in the worst of moments, in the worst of times, they could be content. During the Holocaust of World War II, you might imagine that the book of Esther got a fair amount of play among the Jews of Europe. The Nazis forbade the reading of Esther in the concentration camps. They, they forbade it because they knew what was there. And the Jews, I understand, would write down the story of Esther from their memory and they would read it in secret to each other on the days of Purim when they came around as far as they could remember when they were. Both they and their enemy understood well its message that God's providence would prevail in the end. I.I. Cohen was a a Polish-born survivor of three of those concentration camps, and he wrote about the effects of Purim and its memory among the Jews of those days. I want to read you an excerpt from his book. He says this, We all sat listlessly on our bunks in death camp number four of Dachau, waiting for the high point of our day, the meager bread ration that we received. It was my seventh month in a concentration camp. Do you know that tomorrow is Purim? I asked my brothers in suffering, trying to distract them and myself from tormented thoughts and pangs of hunger. How do you know? Someone said. It's freezing, someone else said. Purim can't be for another month. Crazy Jew, others grumbled. You have nothing else to worry about besides when Purim falls this year. What's the difference anyway? A debate gathered force among the men. Eighty living skeletons crammed tightly into a virtual wooden tomb overgrown with grass. Suddenly silence blanketed the room. The curtain had parted and the block elder stood there with his henchmen bearing our our bread rations. It had been nearly 24 hours. Each inmate, upon receiving his ration, measured it wordlessly with his eyes and compared it to his neighbor's portion, each convinced that the other had received more. In an instant, best friends turned into jealous rivals, and any enjoyment of the bread was spoiled. Within minutes, the stingy portions were devoured by the starving, wretched men, and our stomachs felt just as empty as before. The gnawing hunger made all the more intolerable by the realization that we would have to wait a whole day for the next piece of bread. When I woke up the next morning, I felt dizzy, my head like a lead weight, unable to think of anything else but eating. I began to calculate how much time remained until noon when the hot soup, a a lukewarm liquid in which a piece of potato occasionally floated, would appear. Then it struck me. It's Purim today, I exclaimed. Maybe we'll even remember a few verses of Esther. I suddenly forgot my pain my suffering, my hunger pangs. Perhaps I thought I might even find someone else who could recall a few more verses from Esther so that we could fulfill as much as possible of the obligation handed down from generation to generation. 
And then a small miracle occurred. A complete text of Esther was discovered by my friend, and our elation was immeasurable. Our excitement grew. Who remembered now the hunger, the cold, the filth, the degradation? No one even gave a thought to the dangers involved in organizing a reading of Esther, to the possibility of the Germans deciding to drop in on our hut. Who will read it? Someone asked. The lot, so to speak, fell on me. And so I found myself sitting on the edge of my wooden plank, reciting with my remaining strength, and Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. When I read aloud about Haman's downfall and that the Jews had light and happiness, joy and honor, the spark of hope deep inside every man's heart ignited into a flaming torch. Dear God, I knew each of us was thinking, make a miracle for us too, as you did for our fathers in those days, and let us too see the end of our enemies. When I finished, everyone cheered. For a brief instant, the dreadful reality of the death camp had been forgotten. All the hunger and suffering had receded. I sat breathless, but my spirit soared. That day, when our soup was delivered, the ever-present jealousy among us turned into generosity. Instead of complaints that someone else had received more potato, someone decided to forego a small piece of yesterday's bread that he'd saved and offered it to his comrade instead. Another person made a gift of a potato, and these two portions, which only yesterday could have caused envy and hatred among friends, now became the means by which the inmates could fulfill what was written. They should send gifts of food, one person to another. Just the mere hope of God's victory over the enemy was enough to bring momentary contentment to these desperate souls. But, you know, the lot has fallen on a much better place than mere hope. Because Parim also reminds of a preeminent Savior. You know, it's hard to tell as you look at the book of Esther and read its story who its main character is. If you think about it, is it Esther? She's the title character. Or is it Mordecai? It's one of the two, you might think, as you read through with a literary lens on it, which one is the main character? Because Esther develops from a a sort of a mousy model type into a commanding queen. But Mordecai gets the last nod, doesn't he? Here in chapter 10, he gets the last nod along with the king. We read as concluding remarks about the power and might of the king and the high honor to which the king advanced Mordecai and that Mordecai was great among the Jews and popular among his brothers. And so who's the main character? It's kind of hard to tell, isn't it? I think probably by design because, of course, God is the prominent one who's behind the scenes of all of it. There are a few tools for Old Testament study that that I think are very helpful. You might Consider, briefly, I'll describe them. You can think of, as you read a section of the Old Testament, like Esther, you can think of it in terms of, it's either predictive of Christ, or it's preparatory for Christ, or it's reflective of Christ. Now, for example, Genesis 3.15, that passage that we thought of earlier this morning, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. 
we're told there. That passage predicts for us that the Messiah will come. Or you think of the Exodus as the Israelites were making their way through the wilderness and God gave them all the instructions for the tabernacle. This is how you're supposed to build it and this is the way in which you are to approach me, your holy God. That picture prepares for the role that the Messiah would play eventually. And then you come to the description of Mordecai here. That Mordecai was great. He was preeminent among the Jews. He was popular with the brothers. He sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Mordecai reflects what the Messiah would be like, doesn't he? Mordecai is a, a reflection of the coming king who would do these very things and who, in fact, would be these very things for his people. Because, as Paul wrote to us, Jesus would be the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and by him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Think about that. In him all things hold together. Apart from him all things fall apart. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, what? Preeminence. Esther allowed for the Jews for generations and generations to look back in order to see what was yet to come. When we look back on her story, what do we see? We see that God is good for his promise. Now this week you'll gather together with your family, with your friends, and you'll enjoy some good food and some good drink. I hope that you do that and Hopefully you will remember the something bigger to which it points, which is that God provided at a moment in history for a fledgling country. But when you do that, also remember the something bigger that is infinitely, infinitely better. God is faithful to his church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O oh Lord, we give you thanks for this, your good word to us, your people, and pray that you, O oh Lord, would increase our faith to believe it. Help us, Father, as we come to this communion table together to trust you, to recognize your grace for us in Jesus, and to be made new yet again by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.